Hey guys, and welcome back to Pucks and Pages. My name is Steven, that is my book-loving wife, Liberty. We're a married couple with different interests, and we try to bring each other into our hobbies by discussing the latest news in both books and sports. Today is that book episode. Yes, and it's going to be a weird one. Don't know how I feel about that. Well, it's mostly because we are going to end up doing the mid-year book freakout tag, which is making its rounds through the book internet spaces currently. And also because I know you are not enjoying your current read. So that's going to be fun. Yeah, the current book is a book. It's definitely not your type of book. And I expected you not to love it. Like you've loved a lot of the things that we've read. But I didn't expect it to be this bad. So that'll be fun to talk about. In fairness, I don't know the book's getting a fair chance. Because there's a lot of crap going on around my world right now. Especially with work. So like it's... Kind of not the book's fault, 100%, but... It's not you, it's me. Yeah, a little bit, but it's still the book somewhat, too. <laughs> but getting right into the book news, almost all of it is adaptation news, so I don't know if that's good or bad. It depends on the adaptation, I guess, <laughs> realistically. It could be either really great or... Just not so great. Hot garbage. Yeah. yeah. On June 14th, Netflix released the first images from the set of Persuasion... The film is an adaptation of Jane Austen's classic novel. The stars of the film, Dakota Johnson, Henry Golding, and Cosmo Jarvis. That's a great name. Were shown wearing period costumes. Persuasion was the last novel Austen published before she died. And the story follows 27-year-old Anne Elliott, who is played by Dakota Johnson, as an unmarried woman who reconnects with her former lover, Captain Frederick Wentworth, who is played by Cosmo Jarvis, seven years after she was pushed to break off the engagement by her family and friends. Henry Golding stars as Anne's cousin, Mr. Elliot. Other stars appearing in Persuasion include Richard E. Grant, Suki Waterhouse, and Nikki Amuka Bird. They definitely went with some unknown actors, I feel like, here. But you also have Henry Golding, and he's pretty yeah. well-known. Yeah. Carrie Cracknell will direct the film, and Persuasion is set to release on Netflix in 2022. Interesting. Yeah. I like the period clothing that they chose, but I know next to nothing about Persuasion, so I don't know if I would like it or not. I was going to say, I literally know nothing about Persuasion, and when you say period piece, I, I haven't seen the pictures, so I have no idea how well they're doing that. <laughs> Right, right. Or what period of time it takes place in. Well, like all of Austin's work, it's a classic. Well, I figured as much, but yeah. Same time period as like Pride and Prejudice. Right. Stuff like that. Claire Foy and Rooney Mara have joined the cast of the film adaptation of Miriam Taves' critically acclaimed novel, Women Talking. Sarah Poli will write and direct the film. Women Talking follows a group of women in an isolated religious colony as they struggle to reconcile their faith with a series of sexual assaults committed by the men in the colony. That sounds like a hard pass. Right. At least for us. Foy and Mara will be joined by Jessica Buckley, Sheila McCarthy, Judith Ivey, Ben Wishaw, and Michelle McLeod. Tave said that she wrote the novel as a reaction to the real-life events that took place between 2005 and 2009 at a Mennonite colony in Bolivia. Interesting. Yeah. And, like, I know that religious stuff and, like, extreme religions and cults and stuff like that are all things that 
can interest people, but it's definitely not something I would want to get into, especially like the sexual assault side of things. I was going to say, I don't think the cult part was really what you were too concerned about, but the other stuff is probably a little out there for you. It's a little much. Yeah. Be like the no-go zone in that instance. Stephen King fans will be happy to know that another of his books has been adapted. The adaptation of Lizzie's story has been released by Apple TV+. The book follows Lizzie and Scott Landon and their lives before and after his death. In April 2019, Apple Inc. acquired the rights for the adaptation with King as an executive producer. The first three episodes are up on Apple TV Plus now, starring Julianne Moore and produced by J.J. Abrams. That could be good. You have J.J. Abrams involved, so... (laughs) Like he's done some good stuff and some not so good stuff, so I just don't know if this is supposed to be like a horror or if it's just general well, fiction. It sounds like because it's Stephen King, it's gonna be horror related. Could go either way. Could also be sci-fi to an extent because it's got J.J. Abrams and J.J. Abrams has done that quite a bit. So right, I don't know the original book well enough to make a judgment call on that. Hugh Laurie's adaptation of Agatha Christie's novel "Why Didn't They Ask Evans." has found the lead actors. I like Agatha Christie. Never heard of this novel. So, like, that is kind of obscure, I think. Maybe it's what he could afford. I don't know. Will Poulter and Lucy Boynton will join the cast of the adaptation for Christie's 1934 mystery novel. In the book, readers follow Bobby Jones, who will be played by Poulter, a vicar's son, and and his friend Lady Frances Derwent, who will be played by Boynton. In their attempts to solve the crime surrounding a dying man who utters the title of the novel with his dying breath. Bum, bum, bum. Mammoth Screen and Agatha Christie Limited will produce the adaptation. Other confirmed cast members include Conleth Hill, Amy Noodle, Alistair Petrie, and Joshua James. The first two had made up last names. (laughs) Hill is a last name. I've seen that before. It's just like the person earlier, Cosmo, is the first name. What? No. Cosmo and Wanda. No? Uh, that's a cartoon <laughs> from Nickelodeon. I know. I know. But it's not that far out there. It is pretty far out there. That's why but, it's in the Cosmos. But that is all for adaptations. I don't know. Some of them could be pretty good. I'm definitely not going to watch anything Stephen King does, but that's just because I'm a big old baby. Well, you started the one show, right? Under the Dome, yes. I also started that book, got 300 pages in, and DNF'd it. And I was only 30% of the way through the book. 300 pages was only 30%. That would infuriate me so much. I would be like... That's like almost finishing so many books. At that point, I'd be like, listen, I've made it a third of the way through. Maybe not completely DNF it. Let's just set it down for like a week or two and let my body recoup from this nonsense. I don't know. A lot of people really like Stephen King, but for me, he goes on so many like side tangents that I don't think his writing's for me. It's like when you play video games where you have all these side quests. I love the side quests though sometimes. But that stuff drives me crazy in video games and it does in King's writing as well. Uh, I I literally have watched you play video games and just get irate. Like, why do I have to do this challenge to get the thing? And I'm like, because that's the way the side quests work. And you're like, I, I don't like that. I don't. Many a remote has been thrown. Controller, I mean. Not in front of me, but I'm hoping it doesn't happen when I'm gone. I don't know. <laughs> I guess I'll never know. But 
the last bit of news for the week is another overdue library book has made its way back home after being found by a man whose mother failed to return it by the June 2nd, 1950 due date. 71 years. I'm sorry, I feel like at this point people are just stretching for their 15 seconds of fame. Well, I mean, that's how it feels after last week, for sure. But a woman named Gail Steele had checked out a copy of Dancing Star by Gladys Malvern when she was only 13. The son, Tim Steele, called the library and said he'd pay the fine if it was necessary. Library officials said they did away with fines in 2019, which, good for them. Right. And before that, the fees were capped at $25. But if Steele had been charged the old rate of 15 cents per day, then the book would have accumulated more than $3,888 in late fees. Oof. Yeah, that's a lot of money. To say the least. That's probably why they capped it at one point. Thank God, for his sake. I just approve of the whole, like, let's do away with library fees. Especially yeah. now, given, you know, how how bad would the fines be for people who couldn't take their books back due to COVID? You can 100% bring your books back during the time of COVID. There's just nobody there to check them in. So it'd be like, the roll of security tape, okay, I see you walking up Are with that book that day. Are you going to do that for every person returning books? You'd have to. You'd have to. I feel like they're just not doing fines right now. Or they should start putting RFID chips inside the book. like It scans itself in? Yeah, basically. So it'd just be like as soon as it goes past the little like NFC reader, it would be like, ta-da, we're here. That would be nice. Yeah. And it wouldn't be that expensive. However, there is a chip shortage in the world right now. So Also, how many libraries are there in the United States? A lot. Yeah. But I don't think either one of us will reinvent the wheel as far as libraries go. So why don't we move on to the mid-year book freakout tag? I don't know why they call it a freakout tag, because I'm not going to freak out by any means during this process. Well, for people who are in the book community online, we, for the most part, have goals for what we want to read, and it's just checking in. Do I not have a good read with a goal on it? Well, but this is just checking in, and for a lot of people, they forget what their goals are by this point, so they go back and they're like, oh, I forgot that I had that as a goal, and then they realize, oh, I only have so many months left to do it. Better get on it. Yeah. And I just want to let you know, before we start answering questions, yes, I have twisted some of these to fit myself, but also, none of these have a single answer. They have multiple answers, because I can't. So what you're saying is, buckle up, here we go, it's going to be a long ride. Go ahead, grab snack. Here we go. I was not given this memo. (laughs) What is the best book of the year so far? Probably the most recent one I read, honestly, I think Wild Card really won me over. I think it closed out Warcross as a whole the way it needed to be done, and the ending is pretty good. Like, honestly, I like the way everything kind of played out at the end, so... You didn't want to save that for the sequel question? I have another one for the sequel question. Nice. Which is what's weird because, like, my you'd think roughly they're the same since I picked a sequel for it as the best book, but I, I don't know. I felt like there was still a better sequel. Yeah. I'm surprised you didn't say Vicious. It was on my mind, but it wasn't quite it. I said for new-to-me books, the one by John Mars was up there for me. And actually, that, as far as new-to-me, that's the only new-to-me book that I picked. So what you're saying is lies right out of the gate. No, because as far as rereads go, I have a few that I think are best books of the year. <laughs> Vicious by V.E. Schwab, King of Scars by Lee Bardugo, and Turtles All the Way Down by John Green. Got it. So what is your best sequel of the year? 
uh, Vengeful by V.E. Schwab. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, I really liked the extension of the fact that they really got to look into like the other EOs that existed instead of it just being the very closed one-directional story that you had originally. Yeah, here are original characters. Yeah. And we're just going to stick with them. Right. But, yeah. For new-to-me books, I picked Rule of Wolves by Lee Bardugo. I, I think that finished that series out really well. And Enjoy the View by Sarah Morgenthaler, the one that takes place in Moose Springs, Alaska. I really enjoy that series. And I think that one was my favorite book of the whole series, so that's why I picked it. Makes sense. But as far as reread sequels go for me, I picked The Hand on the Wall by Maureen Johnson because that wraps up really nicely and it's one of my favorite sequels. Got it. What is a new release you haven't read yet but want to? On this one, I didn't really have anything just because I haven't really looked into it that far. I'm not that book person yet where I'm like, I need to read this new release well, there's so much backlist stuff you need to get to. Yeah, and that's kind of what I put. I basically said I'm sadly still playing catch-up with a lot of books. And then I wrote not catch-up because I know you like catch-up in my notes. Yes. Yeah. Well, the first one is not my fault that I haven't read it. I really want to read it. It's just not here yet. So, like, the UPS is a fault. But the answer is The Box in the Woods by Maureen Johnson. It was supposed to get here on Friday. I still don't have it on Sunday. I'm offended. Hopefully, you'll have the book on Thursday when this episode goes up. Yes, hopefully. But also, there's The Initial Insult by Mindy McGinnis, and that one I have as an ebook. Realm Breaker by Victoria Aviard, that's on my TBR, and Pride and Premeditation by Terza Price, I think is how you say their name. I'm especially excited for Pride and Premeditation because it's Pride and Prejudice, but. It's got a murder mystery in there, so I'm very excited for that. It's also a YA mystery, which I'm discovering I'm enjoying more than adult mystery books. That's interesting. Well, I think for adult mystery, they're trying so hard to subvert expectations that it puts me off the way that they do it. Got it. Whereas I feel like you have less of that in YA mystery sort of things. What is your most anticipated release for autumn slash winter or, you know, the back half of the year? I put the new old guard stuff because I just would like to get it and read it. Yeah. And be happy with it. The third bind up, I believe, is called Tales Through Time or something like that. Yeah. The individual issues are coming out right now, but since we have the first two in bind up form, I just pre ordered the bind up. Yeah. But for my answer, I said so many books. So here's a quick list. The Hawthorne Legacy by Jennifer Lynn Barnes, book two in The Inheritance Games. In the Ballroom with Candlestick by Diana Peterfront, book three in the Clue Mystery series. Cytonic by Brandon Sanderson, which is book three in the Skyward series. The Old Guard Tales Through Time, which is a bind up by Greg Rucka and Leandro Fernandez. That's book number three in The Old Guard. And Extraordinary by V.E. Schwab, which is the graphic novel or comic series that's coming out that's like supposed to be between books one and two in the Vicious series. Actually, I think it's called the Villains series by V.E. Schwab. What is your biggest disappointment of the year so far? As a whole, I would say the Catching Fire book. I didn't really enjoy that one so much out of the three. That's surprising because most people prefer one and two in the Hunger Games and don't like three. I'm not saying that three was by any means like the the best book. Right. (laughs) But 
Yeah, I don't know. Mockingjay just didn't do it for me. I, or not Mockingjay, but Catching Fire didn't do it for me. Just kind of, why? I think you go into the game so late in the book that everything feels a little weird compared to book one. Yeah. For me, I said it's On the Rocks by Cat Adams. I didn't have super high hopes to begin with, and still the expectations weren't met. It was just that bad. I had a decent amount of hope for like the romance anthology it came in as like a whole, but I'm sort of afraid to continue it now because of this book. But even more than that, I was disappointed by the effort by Claire Holroyd because the premise is so good, but the book is so dry that like you have to force yourself to keep reading it. But everything else I feel like I had like the right level of expectation for, so I wasn't too disappointed with anything I read. Even the books I rated one, one and a half stars. Like, I knew I wasn't going to love those. <laughs> so you weren't, like, overhyped on your one-star books is what I'm hearing? Yeah. Okay, that's probably better that way. Mm-hmm. What is your biggest surprise of the year so far? I put Every Hearted Doorway by Seanan McGuire. Yeah. I actually really, really liked that, and I was not expecting to. So I just didn't, like, short books like that, I just feel like don't usually get the ability to get everything across. Mm-hmm. And, like, I feel like at times it did kind of struggle with that, and I felt like I was being rushed from, like, one thing to the next. But for the most part, it was a really good book. So I would say that's probably the best answer I have for that one. That's a good one. Yeah. For me, the main one here was The One by John Mars. It's an adult mystery, technically, but there's also a slight romance thing to it. So I really didn't know what to expect of it, but... This was the book that I, when we were sitting on the couch reading together, I would go, oh my God, he's not gonna, he did. I can't believe that just happened. Literally the entire time you read the book. And so like, it takes a lot to get me to like actually vocalize things out loud while I'm reading. So I think that says something about the writing. Let's say normally it's pretty much a brick wall of sound. It doesn't go in or out Mm. when you're reading. Just silent. Yes. And that's how I like it when I'm reading. As I know. But also Plot Twist by Bethany Turner. I was anticipating it going a certain way and it went in a different direction. And I still really enjoyed it, which was surprising to me. Because like the premise leads you to believe it's going to be one thing for sure. And that's not what it is. But it does it well. So you can't be too upset necessarily about it, I guess? Well, it was definitely one of my favorite romances at least for the year i'm not sure how it stacks up against my usual genres that i read but as far as romance goes it's at the top pretty much so who is your new favorite author so the way i weighed this it took me a minute to do because i was like i really really liked the warcross duology and there were a couple other series that like as a whole i thought were really really good so i ended up going with v.e schwab just because i think vicious and vengeful as a pair is probably the best that could exist which is partially why i'm concerned about this new thing that's coming out where it's kind of that in between i don't know how i feel about it yeah the extraordinary yeah yeah like I, I i've got my fingers crossed for it to be really really good but at the same time I'm like it's dang near perfect why are you doing anything to screw this up like, right well i think originally the villains duology was supposed to be a trilogy and she just wrapped it up into there's a chance she's gonna write a third Mm. But, like, each book, the way it ends is, like, it could be a story in and of itself. Right. So, who knows? For me, I said John Mars. Obviously, he's all over this list. But also Trevor Allen Forrest, who is the one who wrote The Octonomy, which was that absurdist novel that I read this spring. I just, 
I had a good time while I was reading it. And I think if I were to reread it, I'd rate it even higher because you have to put in a lot of work to understand what's happening because all of the names and the different definitions and stuff that you have to look up as you're reading. Whereas reading it a second time, it should be easier. Should be a little smoother process. But just, I like the world that he built, and I like the style of humor and the characters, and so I think definitely he could fit in this list. Who is your newest favorite character? So I think this is the hardest one for me, because pretty much every character that I've read about is new to me. Um, yeah. So I I went with one that like I feel like, as a person, I would be able to be friends with, and I think that would be uh, Amika Chen, just because, like, You and I choose very different ways to take this question because I did not pick someone I'd want to be friends with. Yeah, it's it's tough. Like, but as a character, I think that's kind of what makes her my favorite. I guess in that instance, like, I I even went back to some of the stuff from Hank Green's books, and and I was just like, there's really nobody that like jumps out as my favorite out of that series. So Mm -hmm. I'm like, all right, and with Vengeful Vengeance uh, or Vicious, sorry. Still kind of the same thing. I'm like, there's really nobody that I would be like, I could be definitely friends with this person. So I think that's what made my decision. It took a, like probably about 30 or 40 minutes for me to make up my mind on this. but That's a little sad. Yeah. But so I did not choose people I would get along with for the first part. Because that makes sense. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> we know my moral compass just sort of does its own thing. Spins we, around in circles. We know that I like morally gray characters. So what happened? I picked a morally gray character. So, like, do I want to be friends with this person? Obviously not. Do I think they're a good person? Obviously not. Did I enjoy them while I was reading them? Absolutely. So it's Christopher, who was the serial killer in The One by John Mars, and the girl he was matched with, Amy, who is a police officer who ends up killing him by the end of the book. So, yes. But I also picked two nice people that I really enjoyed. They were also a couple, actually. That's weird. So it is Ace Clyde and Karina Ahmed in Counting Down With You by Tashi Buayan. They're really cute together. I like the way they work with each other, but also as people, they are very interesting. Four whole people. Are my favorite characters. My newest favorite characters. (laughs) Look, I told you there were multiple answers. For this next question, I want to preface this by saying that, like, I don't normally answer this question, but because it's weird as an adult to crush on fictional characters, because the question is newest fictional crush. But, like, especially if the main age range you read is young adult and you're not a young adult. But a couple of... Male characters I enjoyed from some adult romance novels that I've read are Liam from Plot Twist and Dr. River Pena from The Soulmate Equation by Christina Lauren. I didn't put anybody on here because, like you just stated, it just seemed weird to have a crush (laughs) on any of these people that would be under the age of 18 in, like, 90% of the instances. You could have picked, oh, what's-her-face from uh, Vengeful, Marcella. Yeah, totally. No. (laughs) No, I think that's a weird question. I don't like that it's in this tag, but this tag has been around so long that, like, it wasn't weird when the tag was made. I was going to say, like, I understand that, like, if you're naturally in that age group, you could probably see more situations like that. And depending on what kind of YA books, maybe you could also see that attachment. But for me, it's just like, I'm married, I'm in my 30s, and most of these people are just 
I children to me. Even if all I read were adult romances, I would still think it's weird to have a crush on a fictional character. Yeah, but that has more to do with your personality than it does anything else. But see, I didn't think it was weird when I was a teenager. Yeah. So, like, it's just getting old. Yeah. Well, we'll see if you have an answer to this next question. What is a book that made you cry? I, I really haven't had that yet. I need to pick out a book that makes you cry? I guess. I don't know. Like, there's been a couple character deaths where I'm like, man, this really sucks. Like, I'll get down, but I'm yeah. never, like, bawling out in tears over anything yet, so. I said, up until last week, my answer would have been none of the books I've read this year have made me cry. But now there are two. Because <laughs> both of the books I read this past week made me cry. And what's really bad is they are both rereads. I have read these books before, and they made me cry again. I'm sorry. So the first one is The Host by Stephanie Meyer. I'll talk about that later. And Turtles All the Way Down by John Green, which I will also talk about later. What is a book that has made you happy? Some of those had to have happened. I would say the an absolutely remarkable thing by Hank Green. I feel like it always just, like, I was always happy to come back to that book. Like, yeah. I was never like, man, I got to read. It was more of like, oh, cool, get to do some more reading. Like, I think I, it's definitely his sense of humor, like, coming through the book. Yeah. Like, while I was on here looking up the Goodreads stuff, like, I was just trying to attach myself back to the book a little bit, and, like, there's some awful reviews for that book, and I'm like, why? I don't understand. A like, lot of people don't like April May as a character. They think she's a horrible person, and, like... She is! That's her... That's the point. That's who she's supposed to be. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And a lot of people don't like reading things where they can't relate to or enjoy the main character. So, uh, that's why. I said that I feel like all of my rereads make me happy, but for new books, Enjoy the View by Sarah Morgenthaler made me happy. Fugitive Telemetry by Martha Wells made me happy. The Dating Dare by J.C. Lee made me happy. So these are all books that I had a good time while I was reading them. Does that mean they are all top tier books? Not necessarily. Two out of the three, maybe. Right. But I had a good time and I was happy while I was reading them. It's important. Well, and a lot of people give up on books when they don't make them happy while they're reading. And I was like, I don't know about all that. You're like, oh, that's normally me, but... What is the most beautiful book of the year so far? So this one's tough for me because I have a personal attachment to one of them. I, I really do like the new Hatchet version that I bought while we were in Waco. I think it's gorgeous for what it is. Which is silly because it's such a plain right, right. book, but like, it's... The best cover I think they've ever had for it. So it's like, all right, nailed it. Finally. Took yeah. you a while, but welcome to the party. And then it comes down to two different Mean Lima books. I think probably between Peter Pan, I think the exterior of that book is beautiful. The interior of that book is also beautiful. Yeah. And then the other option would probably be the Mean Lima Sorcerer's Stone. I feel like the exterior of that book is just perfect for yeah. what it needs to be. So you took this book in one of the two avenues you could have taken this question because with this one, it just says the most beautiful book of the year so far. It doesn't say that you've read or that you've purchased. So like there are two different ways you can take that. I took it as that I've read. So we went two different ways with this one. For most beautiful book that I have read this year, one option is Escaping Eleven by Jerry Chisholm. Another one is The Fable Duology by Adrian Young. Both of those are absolutely gorgeous, especially when you put them right next to each other because they make a person's face. Right. And also the Mina Lima edition of Peter Pan. Those are all really pretty. Yeah. 
As far as most beautiful book that I might have purchased this year, I don't know. I did get the collector's edition of Shadow and Bone, which is really pretty. And I did get The Lives of Saints by Lee Bardugo, which is the in-world book from Shadow and Bone series. So that's the other avenue I could have answered. What are some books you need to read before the end of the year? I don't really have any that are on my list of, like, to be read no matter what. Like, I don't like to put myself in that situation because I, I don't know that I'm always going to have the time to read as much as I want to. You definitely need more flexibility in your reading life than I do. Yeah. I feel like we usually make a list of books that we're trying to get you to read for, like, a season of the podcast. Yeah. And then we'll shuffle them around however they work in the season. Yeah, because basically at this point I want to read at least nine more books, so complete the one I'm reading and then eight more after that. Okay. Because that was the goal that I would have set for myself for the year, but obviously I have a feeling I'm going to do that and probably more. It's just a matter of... I think it depends on what you read, because... One of the options is to have you read Skyward and Starsight right before Cytonic comes out in November because yeah. then I could reread with you for the podcast, but also I could reread for me. Yeah. But those books are longer, so that would take more time. So your only goal here is eight more books. Yeah, basically at this point, just no matter what. Like, I know I'm going to read more. It's just a matter of how many more it will actually be. Yeah. I said that I have a couple of lists that I'm working on. So books from there would be the rest of the books on my read it or leave it list, which are Blood Red Road by Moira Young and The Young World by Chris Wheats. Those are the last two I've left after I finish one of the books I'm reading this week. And then a few books, at least five, I want to say, from my 40 books before 40 list that's going to go up in a couple of weeks. And all of my pre-ordered new releases I want to read as they come in. Because there's a reason I pre-order books. So I can read them as they come out. Yeah. So those for sure. As for how many, since we've brought that into the equation. By the time I finish June, I will have read at least 70 books. I don't think I want to read 70 books in the back half of the year. I'd like to be able to walk through the back half of the year, not sprint. Yeah. So I want to read at least... 40 or 50 more books, and that would be a walk for me. Yeah, that's for sure, to say the least. As for what I've been reading and crying about this past week, I read The Host by Stephanie Meyer, which was a 2008 release. It's a YA slash new adult sci-fi post-apocalyptic fiction sort of mashup. I originally rated it four stars when I read it originally, but I reread this book so often that, like, I feel like it is one of my favorite books. And normally, all my favorite books get five stars. But the writing is still, you know, Stephanie Meyer. So I, I can't bump it up to a five. I don't think I can. I kind of understand that with my vote of lack of confidence in one of the, the books. So, yeah. But for this one, the synopsis is that an alien race has taken over the planet and a small band of human resistance tries to fight to survive. And it's a host-slash-parasite situation for the alien and human relationships. I also watched the movie after I finished this book, and the movie is not great. And now I know why I don't own a copy, because I... I was looking around for my copy because I thought I had one and I couldn't find it. I was like, oh, I'll just watch it on one of our streaming services instead. Did that. I was like, oh, that's why I don't have a copy. It's not great. 
And also, it really doesn't hold up. Like, the book doesn't hold up, but the movie really does not hold up. So it went from bad to worse. Yeah. The book holds up about as well as a Stephanie Meyer book can, but it's Stephanie Meyer. So, no. The only thing that gets me with this one is the fact that I know I've read it at least seven times. Possibly closer to ten, because I've marked it on Goodreads five times. I know I read it when it came out. I know I reread it before I got Goodreads. So seven to ten times, and I still cried. So I feel like that says something about the writing. Either that or it knows how to hit your emotions just right. Yeah. At least one or the other. And then on this next one, I won't get too deep into it because it's the book you're currently working on. Turtles All the Way Down by John Green. It was a 2017 release. And it's a YA contemporary novel. It's got a little bit of a mystery, but it's like a sprinkling of mystery in the novel. I originally rated it five stars when it first came out. It's one of my favorite books of all time. I also cried when I was reading this. The synopsis for this one is, When billionaire Russell Pickett is about to be taken in for fraud charges, he disappears and his company issues a $100,000 reward for any information relating to his whereabouts. But in reality, the book is about Aza, who struggles with OCD and her friendships. I pretty much nails it on the head. Yeah, but we'll get into it. As for what I plan on reading next, the first one is The Girl of Fire and Thorns by Ray Carson. It's a 2011 release and a YA fantasy It's part of my read it or leave it challenge for the year. I'm going to finish it this week, so that won't be a problem. For this one, once in a century, one person is chosen for greatness. Eliza is the chosen one and the youngest of two princesses. She's the one who can never do anything right. But after secretly marrying a neighboring king, people begin to expect things of her. A king who needs her help saving his kingdom. A revolutionary who thinks she's his people's savior. Eliza could finally rise up and be everything that these people need of her if she doesn't die young, which most chosen do. I've already started this one. The synopsis makes it sound better than it is so far, so we'll see. It sounds interesting, at least a little bit, so... So far, it's sort of of its time, which is kind of a problem, because it's only been 10 years, so... Got it. And then, if this book will ever arrive... I will read The Box in the Woods by Maureen Johnson. It's a new release, just came out, and a YA mystery. We follow Stevie Bell, and it seems like she's going to have a boring summer until the camp director for Sunny Pines contacts her to get her help with the Box in the Woods murders that happened at the camp in the 70s. Stevie agrees as long as she can bring her friends from Ellingham Academy, but when Stevie opens the lid on this cold case, she gets more than she bargained for. It should be good. Early reviews are good if I can just get the book in my hands. Well, and so far you've really liked this series as well, so it should land pretty well with you. I like Stevie as a character. I think I like Nate more just because, like, he's the surlier character of the two. But now we can finally get to what you've been reading, which is the first half of Turtles All the Way Down by John Green. Do we have to? Yes, because I wrote notes for the book, and if I don't, I'll be mad. I'm really sad. Yeah. You are not enjoying this book mostly because it's not about what it said it was about or just it's not actiony enough for you. Um, I don't think I have a problem with the action side of it. I just feel like it's 
written maybe for a different age group than myself, and it's blatantly apparent to me. Well, it's definitely a YA book. Well, yeah. And you're definitely not YA. And I feel like the other books that we've read so far are not quite to this level. It It's good. It's just, like, I can't get excited about it. Like, I just can't. I've tried, and it's just not clicking for me. Like, I even multiple times have had to try to remember names that are blatantly written right in front of me as to who's talking to who because it's just, like, it doesn't grasp my attention enough to be like, oh, that was important, you know? I definitely think it's action that's part of the problem. Well, there's nothing. Like, there's stuff going on, but it's... It's just But not, you feel like nothing's going on. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and it's just like there's conversations being had and I'm sure they're important and eventually I will have to remember them. But as it sits right now, it's like it doesn't feel important, you know, and, and, and that's fine, you know, it's totally okay. But I think the way that this book is pitched doesn't do this book any good things. It's not... Like exactly I, what the pitch is. I came in expecting 100% a mystery style book and, and I'm not getting it. And it's Well, just, I definitely know I warned you that it's not about what it says it's about. Well, you warned me, but that's still like, I'm not attached to the characters. And in fairness, I feel like I've gone through like three or four sets of books in succession where I'm like hooked. And so I feel bad. Maybe I'm not giving this book really a chance because of that. But well, Definitely you're going to read the book, so that's giving the book a chance. Whether you connect with the characters or not, that's just in the writing. So. Right. But the book is supposed to be about missing billionaire Russell Piggott, but in reality, it's about Aza's sort of, like, mental... Health Devolvement. Issues. Yeah. She just is slowly losing it throughout the novel. If you've ever finished a puzzle and you've kind of pushed it off the table, little bits and pieces start falling off. That's what I feel like is happening to her right now. Yeah. And, and like, there's good things around her and she's just not seizing it. And she's like, you know what, let me just push this puzzle a little further. And I'm like, no, don't do it. Like, Well, I think you're going in a really bad direction with this because, like, when it comes to your mental health, it doesn't necessarily matter what is around you. What matters is what's going on in your head. Oh, I'm not arguing that. I'm just saying it just seems like that's what's happening. She's just, she's more or less slowly turning the self-destruct button towards self-destruct. And she's not trying to. It's just the way her mental health situation is. At least what I've grasped out of it so far. Well, when the novel opens, we meet Aza and her friends Daisy and Michael while they're eating lunch in the school cafeteria. But during the scene, Aza's not really there. Mentally, she's struggling with her OCD-centered thoughts and not fully focused on the conversation. But this is also when we're vaguely introduced to the mystery of fugitive billionaire Russell Davis Pickett, who went on the run the night before a warrant for his arrest was executed. And Daisy is very focused on the mystery because if she finds him, she gets all this money. And Daisy is very poor. Yeah. So she is trying to get Aza involved because she knows Aza knows his son from when they went to what they call sad camp together. Yeah, I was a little confused as to what that was, but then, like, he kind of clears it up because it explains it, so I'm like, Yeah, it's basically the kids are all going to camp together to deal with their grief from losing a parent. Yeah. And we also end up meeting Aza's mom, who's a teacher at her high school, which, no thank you. I do not want my mom at my high school. 
And as Aza is driving Daisy to work after school, they overhear on the radio all about his dealings and the reward, and Daisy decides to call out from work so that they can use Aza's connection with his son Davis to get information about him to hopefully use to get the reward money. Which I'm not fond of. I don't like the idea of, like, abusing a relationship or friendship to get information on things. Well, and, like, they're not even that close because, like, they went to camp together and then sort of faded away as they went into high school or whatever. Well, because one of them's going through the public school system and the other one's going through private school. So it's like they don't even see each other. So, like, they're they're not really friends. They knew each other at one point. They were old acquaintances, if anything. But... Daisy convinces Aza to get the canoe and canoe out to the other side of the river to the property line of the Pickett estate. And the outskirts of the property have a hidden camera that takes a photo whenever something moves nearby. And Aza downloads the most recent photos before seeing a security guard for the estate coming by on a golf cart. And what's funny in that scene is Aza's not nervous, but Daisy is, like, losing it. She thinks they're going to get into a lot of trouble. But Aza is so used to freaking out for OCD reasons that, like, this this guy in a golf cart doesn't even bother me. She's like, oh, okay, guy in golf cart, bring it. (laughs) They end up making an excuse that their canoe has a hole in it and that they know Davis. So Lyle, the security guard, drives them up to the house in his golf cart. And that's when you see how the other half lives, not the other half, the 1%. But his place isn't supposed to be in that great of a neighborhood either, so it's like... No, it's just a very expensive, fancy mansion in a bad part of town. Yeah. Or not great part of town. Right. And when they meet up with Davis, it's clear that he remembers Aza from their time at camp together when they were kids. And they end up meeting the staff zoologist, because that's a thing. Because it wasn't bougie enough, but now... <laughs> and we end up meeting the Tuatara that he's in charge of taking care of named Tua. Yeah, I felt like the creativity by the writer here was not that stellar. I feel like if you ever met a billionaire, you would also think that like your creativity is just not there. So I feel like it makes sense for his name to be Tua. I haven't done business with a Tua. billionaire yet, but I have done it with a lot of millionaires and... I don't know, like, I haven't gotten that feeling yet, but maybe I haven't gotten high enough dollar-wise. Yeah, that's exactly it. (laughs) And then when Davis drops them off at Aza's house, Aza gives him her phone number, and that's sort of, like, the start of their, like, romance. Sure, you can call it that. I will. Then we sort of dive deeper into Aza and her OCD and intrusive thoughts and, like, spiraling. Which is something that I've used to explain my mental health before, way before I ever read this book. Because I know there would be days when I first moved in with you, we would discuss, like, I'm spiraling, I need a distraction, something to take my mind off my spiraling. And, like, that was a thing way before I ever read this book. Realistically, before this book was probably even written to an extent. Before it was even a thought. Yeah. But we also see that Russell Pickett has a will wherein if he dies, all of his money and property goes to a corporation in charge of taking care of the Tuatara, which that sounds like a billionaire to me. So dumb. Leave all the money to the dog. Or the almost dragony lizard or lizardy dragon. I've had, I have an employee who actively right now has left his life insurance to his animals. So Is he married? No. No, I don't see the problem. 
kind of, kind of a little strange still, though. If you're not attached, that's fine. Like, he's, he's, they, they've got family members, so it's kind of like, I don't know if it's 100% the best choice. After Daisy gets off work a couple days later, they meet at Applebee's for burgers and research into the, into the Russell Pickett mystery. The Russell Pickett disappearance. Yes. Yeah. I wouldn't call it a mystery because you don't really get that much mystery from it. So, I don't know. Again, a little bit. My issue with this book. And Aza is in charge of diving into the family and all of their drama and background. Daisy is in charge of finding the police report. And she does. Through some kind of sketchy means. Yeah, that was definitely a weird topic point, but she does get it, so. I feel like Daisy would be a lot to handle as a person. So high energy all the time. They also find a lot of information about Pickett's legal problems within the company, but also from the people who worked at his estate, which is definitely family drama. It's true. And then in one of the most uncomfortable scenes... In this book, not the most uncomfortable, you'll get to that later, but one of the most uncomfortable scenes in the book, Michael awkwardly tries to ask out Daisy through Aza, and it's it's just uncomfortable all around. Yeah. He's a giant baby. Yeah. <laughs> he looks like a giant baby. That was probably the most enjoyable part of what I've read, and it's so funny that you call it the most embarrassing. I Honestly, it was the most enjoyable thing I've read in this book so far. Well, but so. you don't like the book, so yeah. that's not saying much. But it also was just great humor because, like, I had friends in high school that had shaved heads like that. So, like, I understand <laughs> the giant baby thing. Like, yeah. I think that's pretty funny. And during school, Aza reads the police report, which doesn't include the information from the hidden camera at the edge of the picket property. So, like, they know they've got an in that a lot of people don't for this disappearance. But also, Davis and Aza text a little bit about the fact that he can never know anyone's intentions towards him because of his money, which leads to certain things he does later on. And Daisy ends up coming to Aza later and says that in a fluster, she had agreed to go on a double date with Michael, Aza, and Davis. So now Aza has to convince Davis to go along with it, and he does because he likes her or whatever. Not whatever. He definitely likes her. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You're like, or whatever. You know, know, like, uh, It's whatever. Yeah, it's like we're back in middle school again, you know, or whatever. (laughs) And we also see Aza's appointment after school with Dr. Singh, and we see that Aza is having a hard time with her OCD and intrusive thoughts, and it's starting to become more of a problem. So we had a conversation about this a little bit last night, and I am a firm believer that, like, it, I I can't speak to it because I'm not OCD. Right. But at the same time, like, I feel like she's way over the top, and that might just be from my perspective because I haven't had friends that have apparently made it clear to me or abundantly clear to me that it's something that they're affected with. But I don't know. I guess I've just been lucky so far. Really get spun into those things. The only thing that I get messed up on now is even numbers, thanks to you. So I don't know. Well, you have to realize with this book, obviously... Aza is getting worse, and she's supposed to be getting worse as, like, the narrative. Yeah. And so, like... That's abundantly clear, so... When people are as bad as Aza, they don't necessarily end up out in the world showing these symptoms to other people. Right. And a lot of the times, the things that are happening in Aza's head, you'll never know about for anyone else, because you're not in their head. Right. I personally found this book extremely relatable on the mental health front, and 
a lot of the things that Aza thinks about herself and her thoughts and her mental health are things that I've thought or felt. And so for me, I found her extremely relatable. And also at the same time, reading this book made me very anxious the whole time I was reading it, especially the first time I read it. You gave it five stars. And I gave it five stars. So, you know. That makes sense. That makes sense, yes. But I found that I could also experience a lot of the spiraling that she was experiencing. So the first time I read it, I definitely had to take breaks between chapters because otherwise my mental health would turn into garbage. Yeah, you'd start to spiral with the spirals of the book. Yeah, so I think part of your problem is just not having the same experiences as Aza has had with her mental health. Not being like related full with it necessarily. I can agree with you. I think that has something to do with it versus your version of enjoyment and mine. Um, again, like the only mental health thing I have going on is ADD or ADHD, depending on the day. And that's really it. So like, I, I can't relate to a lot of those right. things. It's just not, not realistic. And I would be afraid to say that she's over the top with her mental health problems because this is written by an author who experiences OCD and a lot of the same things that Aza has trouble with. So I would I would be a little afraid to say something like that. Yeah, I gotta respect that. But in the next chapter, we see a pretty awkward date for the four of them. But I feel like what Aza is experiencing during the date is very relatable, where you feel like you're on the outside of everything and just a little out of sync with the group of friends that you're in. And, like, when your friends laugh, you feel like you're a second behind and not really a part of what's going on. Like, I feel like that's very common. You have, like, the translation delay on everything that's going on more so than anything. And, like, it was definitely more a three-person date. And poor Davis was really a third wheel to an extent. It it was like a date with two third wheels, which is what you think would make a four-wheel thing, but... It's not. It's just she's so out of sync with everyone else that she's, like... A detached wheel. Yeah. I just thought it was weird that the way they had the seating arrangement done. Like, I get it, you want to be across from your date, but, like, every time I've been on a double date, I sit next to the person I'm dating, not across from. And I know that was done on purpose to probably protect Daisy from her uncomfortableness around Michael at that point in time. Or possibly because the author wanted to amplify the awkwardness and the uncomfortableness. Yeah. Because that uncomfortable feeling kind of gets stronger as you go throughout the novel anyway. So I feel like that would just be another thing to make that happen. Yeah, I could see that. They decide to drive to Davis's house to watch a movie. Michael and Daisy both kind of freak out about the house while Aza and Davis go down to the basement And it's pretty obvious that Davis is trying to impress Aza. In fact, he says he's trying to impress her because he likes her. And she's just basically like, cool, it's the thing you have. Like, I'm not... I think she handled that pretty well. Yeah, she definitely did. Just like, oh, okay, good for you. I'm not impressed. It's nice that you have these things, but I don't need them. Mm -hmm. And they decide to go out and look at the stars. This is when... Aza and Davis really open up to each other because they can have a more serious conversation when they're not staring at each other across the table. And Aza tries to explain about her OCD and the thoughts that seem to always take up so much space in her brain. 
They also discuss how Davis can't be sure if Aza likes him or if she's after the reward money. So he decides to do something about it. And he finds $100,000 in cash around their, like, guest house to give her from hidden places. That way, he'll know what she's really after by her behavior after the fact. Yeah. So, like, if you don't come around anymore, I know what you were coming around for. But if you do, then you weren't after the reward money. Like, I kind of understand that. But at the same time, it's like, that could have blown up in your face so hard, dude. Could have been like, I'm literally laying in this sand trap with you uncomfortably, but because I like you, I'm still here doing this. Right. And you're going to be a about it and like be like, here, just take this money. Well, for him, it feels like it's worth $100,000 just to get the peace of mind that he doesn't have to constantly question her and her behavior. And I kind of get that. At the same time, you're kind of a jerk. Yeah. But as she goes to leave, being properly freaked out, of course, she runs into Davis's younger brother, Noah, and Noah shares Russell's notes from the cloud to help Aza with the mystery of his disappearance. So you kind of do get a little bit of mystery, but like we are getting close to like a third of the way into the book and just now starting to see more of the breadcrumbs that are there. Right. The pieces are finally starting to expose themselves. Like, here we are. Yeah. And... Aza calls Daisy to check in with her about the previous night, but she has to work, so they agree to meet up afterwards at Applebee's. While they're there, Aza explains the money situation to Daisy, and they agree to split it 50-50. She didn't even have to do that, but she always knew she was going to do that. Because she's a good friend. Go figure. You know, you got to take care of your friends. And then they have a real meal at Applebee's, and they tip the waitress what she deserves, is what I put in my notes. It, Having been a waitress, like, she put up with your nonsense, you better pay her. Like, but I feel like as a waitress or a waiter, like, everybody's had those kids in, because, like... Yeah, for sure. I, I was that kid at one point in time, but, like, the the waitress that usually helped us, she she just had fun, you know? She'd come over and just make small talk and, like, yeah. be part of our group more so than anything. And that was, like, towards the end of high school and into the college years. Like, it was just our normal place was to, like, go to Denny's at, like, 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night and then just, you know, unwind from the day and catch up with friends. And and she was always, she always worked the night shift. So it was just, like, she just come over and be like, what's new, guys? Like, yeah, just to see how our day was going. And it was just, like. I'm just, just like, saying, even if she's having fun, she needs to be paid. Yeah. But the next day. Aza gets a call from Davis's lawyer, who has found a bank willing to accept the gift Davis has given her and made an appointment for her for the following day. And while she's on the phone with him, she tries to discuss the well-being of the boys, yeah. Davis and Noah. But he was more concerned about Noah, but yeah. And the lawyer is like, I don't care. I'm not paid to care about that. Yeah. I'm supposed to handle the money, period. Duh. And Davis is an emancipated minor and technically Noah's legal guardian. So, like, what do you want me to do? I'm a lawyer. This is how this works. Yeah. I have no say in this. It is what it is. But while driving to the bank after school with Daisy, Aza has a thought spiral about one of her compulsions and she cannot get out of it. She ends up pulling over to the side of the road to do the compulsion and is stuck there doing it over and over and over until the appointment time has come and gone. And Daisy is sitting there not knowing how to help Aza so that they can just go to their appointment and get this done. Right. And that was one of the moments when I really cried really hard because I understand being trapped in a thought spiral and a compulsion 
spiral where like you know this makes no sense you know this is dumb you know you need to move past this but you just can't and you're just trapped by your own thoughts the dilemma in comparison from yours to hers would be though that i've never seen you go man i can't even drive home right now right so like albeit i do most of the driving for us but like I've never seen a spiral, even when we were in California and you were working where it was just going to shut you down, so. But I definitely understood her and her. Perspective of it and how she was dealing with it. getting trapped in her brain and her getting trapped in her compulsions, even if I've never had to pull over to the side of the road like that. It's true. And they end up getting to the bank and setting up their accounts. And Aza gets home afterward and takes the medication she's supposed to take when she gets really bad, as her doctor says. Her mom tries to check on her, but Ace is kind of groggy and not fully there and just tries to ignore her and go to sleep. More or less just brick walls her until she can fall asleep. And in this next chapter, I can kind of understand where Aza is coming from because she arrives at school to find that Daisy has purchased a used car and they get into a bit of a fight at school about the choice. Well, because they were warned not to spend any money in the first few months because... People blow money like that. Yeah, you're you're blinded by it by a little bit. Right. Yeah. $50,000 is a lot of money. But to when a you start, high schooler, yeah. But when you start spending it, you yeah. realize it's not as much money as you thought it was. It goes very quickly. And Aza ends up spending the day reading up about colleges and sort of ignoring real life around her, which is kind of common for... High schoolers? Well, I was going to say for her, because, like, even when she's not reading up about colleges and ignoring real life around her, she is in her head about stuff, so... And then they end up meeting at Aza's house to study after school. And while studying, Daisy pulls out a brand new laptop, which causes them to kind of get into a real fight. And Daisy is upset that Aza is judging her, while Daisy does her best not to judge Aza for her mental health issues. They're definitely different things, though. Definitely. (laughs) And When she was comparing it, I was like, I'm getting mad at you right now for the fact that, like, I know people that are dealing with this. Like, yeah. they don't, they're not choosing to buy a laptop as their mental health state. Right. Like, as a comparison. One is definitely, I'm unable to do anything else about this besides what I am already doing about this. And one of these is, I want a laptop. Yeah. So. And Aza thinks that Daisy is being irresponsible with her new money, especially since Daisy has already quit her job at Chuck E. Cheese. And so. They kind of don't resolve that before Daisy leaves. But Aza and Davis have a date at his house that night. They eat dinner, kind of, and then go out to see if they can catch any of the meteor shower that's happening, but it's really cloudy. You skipped one of my favorite parts of the book. Oh, what? Where he meets uh, Aza's mom. Oh, yeah. That was intense. And, and like... She meant good, but it was like, oof, that was so bad. Like, Well, when he comes and picks her up and he ends up meeting her, that is like single mom status. Like she, she's just all over this boy. And the only real problem with that is Davis's mother died when around the time Aza's dad died. So like it's hard for him to like be confronted with so much momness. Yeah. So like... I wanted to try to compare this with my household because my parents were divorced from each other from a fairly young age for me. And for the most part, I always lived with one parent. Yeah. And I was like, but coming from a guy's perspective, I feel like parents treat you a little differently. Like 
as a, a daughter, you're kind of like more precious. Whereas with me, it was like, just don't get killed. Don't do something stupid. Bye. Like, well, I think boys and girls are definitely raised different. I don't know if that should be the case, but they definitely are. Yeah. It, it, it was definitely like, if you make bad decisions, let me know so I can help you. Otherwise, don't let the door hit you on the way out type of, of relationship that I had with my parents. So, Whereas if a girl makes a bad decision, she could end up dead. Yeah. Well, guys can too, but we just... Different kinds of bad decisions. Yes, yes. But I think for him, it was really just being around someone who cares so much about their child when his parents haven't either been around or Shown haven't that. cared. Yeah, period. So it's just, it, I, it's it a hit lot him. for him. It hit him right in the emotions. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that was one of your favorite parts. I really did like it. I think it, it really showed the emotional side of Davis a little bit more than you got anywhere else. Yeah. I, I feel like for the most part, he's he's like trying really hard to open up Aza, but it's just like, it's not what you do with somebody that has that type of health condition. You can't force them to open up. Like you can guide them to it. Yeah. <laughs> but you can't do what he's doing, which is part of the reason I really don't like him for the most part. Yeah. And probably why I don't like the book, because I'm like the main couple. I'm like, mm. Yeah. But they do have a date at his house. And yes. They're, they're trying to see this meteor shower, but it's really cloudy, so they can't. Yeah. And they end up kissing. <gasps> I know. I this can't believe it. another reason I don't relate to this book very well, because it's like, duh. Because they have kissing? No, because it's like, duh. It, yep. It's going to happen. Well... While they're making out, Aza falls into one of her thought spirals about germs and how his bacteria is colonizing in her gut and all of this stuff. When, like, when you get into it, kissing is gross. I didn't really realize, like, I didn't look up the the numbers like she did. But, like, when I thought about it, I'm like, wow, there's a lot of really weird bacteria in my stomach. (laughs) (laughs) That is gross. You're right, Aza. Yeah. I, I wasn't grossed out. I was just like, this is the thing that happens. And I'm like, it's bound to happen so yeah. and davis is trying to be understanding of aza but she is so self-conscious about her brain and how her physical body is reacting to her anxiety so she ends up going home not that i blame her but when she gets home her mom expresses concern about how she's acting but aza pushes her away while the spiral continues to tighten that's pretty much where we wrap up yeah and it's a lot i I think the first the first half definitely makes me more emotional than the second half. Yeah. And I think it's because I don't think I've ever gotten as bad as she does in the back half. So I can't fully understand where we end up with the novel because I've never gotten there. But with the first half of the book, I've definitely been in situations stuck in thought spirals. But I think in the first half, I can better understand her thought spirals and her compulsions and can understand her emotions towards her mental health. So I feel like that made me more emotional than the back half of the book does. Gotcha. Even though it gets bananas in the back half of the book, which is what you'll end up reading this next week. Correct. I just hope we can find something better in season three for you because I didn't realize how much you were going to dislike this book. I knew it wouldn't be your favorite, but I didn't think it would be this bad. In fairness, I think you set me up with a lot of very good books at the front half of this season. And that's, that's kind true. of put yourself that's in true. a situation where it was like, eventually you're going to miss. Like you can't hit the ball every time you come up to the plate. Well, I didn't think I was going to whiff that hard. Yeah, it's all right. <laughs> but 
you, you swung really hard like it was going to be a home run, and then it was a curveball, and you missed it by like a mile. So it's okay. I, I swung, I missed, I missed so hard I fell on my butt. I'm not one to DNF things, so I'm going to go through with it. So I'm not too worried about it. And then we'll have a break after that, and hopefully during that time we can cue some things up for you. Yes, sounds like a good plan, but I guess we'll catch you on the next sports episode. And make sure in the meantime you are checking out all the social media, which will be linked in the show notes. See you next time, guys. Bye. Bye.